0: there was a a a mama squirrel in my backyard and she was moving her young from one tree cavity to another tree and she was carrying each one by the scruff of its neck and she was crossing this great network of branches and trees and then making this death-defying leap across this huge chasm to get to the final tree and then stuffing the, the young one in. And then she would always go to a branch somewhere and she would just collapse with all her limbs dangling off the branch because she was so, <laughs> so exhausted. And I just photographed this really thoroughly. And when I share those photos on social media or in talks, People flip out. They just absolutely love it. And it gives them a whole new perspective on this really common animal. And that gets me excited that there's this kind of way to wake people up to the wonder of nature and to draw those commonalities and to elicit this sort of empathy and humor.
1: Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. Melissa Grew is a wildlife photographer, writer, speaker, and educator. She is a contributing editor to Audubon Magazine, a bi-monthly columnist on wildlife photography for Outdoor Photographer Magazine, and an associate fellow with the International League of Conservation Photographers. She speaks and writes extensively on issues of ethics and conservation in wildlife photography, and she leads workshops in the U.S. and abroad. Melissa's work has been published in numerous books and magazines, such as Smithsonian, Audubon, National Wildlife, and Natural History. And she is represented by National Geographic Image Collection. This is We Are Photographers with Melissa Grew, and this is her story. Melissa Grew, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is an honor to have you with us.
0: Ken, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Well, I want to just jump right in because I know you have photographed so many incredible animals and their environment. And I want you to take us to one of these scenes and in particular, your work and stories around elephants.
0: Yeah. So for a number of years, about six years, I worked for an elephant scientist at Cornell And we would do our field seasons in Central Africa, in the Central African Republic. And every day we would travel from our camp through this dense rainforest to this clearing the size of a few football fields. And every day about 150 to 200 elephants would come gather in this clearing. And these were forest elephants, which are different from the savannah elephants that many of us know so well. And they're little seen because they're mostly in dense forest. But they would come out to this clearing to drink from the mineral rich waters. And you would just see all kinds of behavior. You'd see babies playing together and big males jousting and males and females courting. And it was just an unbelievable experience. You know, you'd also, there'd be swirling, calling African gray parrots and antelopes of different kinds and Once in a great while, a gorilla would come visit the clearing and we were up on a platform and we were looking down on this just incredible scene that felt so, so primeval and so wild. I really felt like, felt like I was at the center of the universe. You know, I look back on, on those times there, I spent about six months total and it was really sort of the greatest honor and, and, uh, adventure in my life
1: you're obviously you're a writer and so i can even tell mm-hmm. just you're a <laughs> storyteller i'm wondering because this was even before you got mm-hmm. really serious about photography were you always connected to nature to animals um as even as a little girl like when when did your love for for the environment and all living things come about
0: you know it it really started from when i was very very young, I always had a fascination with animals and, and a great heart for animals. And, you know, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, but always kind of more than for, for people, I felt this kinship with animals. And when I was a child, I, I grew up in Manhattan. So I wasn't really exposed to much wildlife. We had dogs and cats and they were my companions, but mostly I lost myself in books. I was a real bookworm, and I, I mostly read stories in books about animals, and especially wild animals, and that's what really resonated with me. And, and as I grew up and sort of turned my hand to different things, I sort of held a number of different jobs, but there was always this just abiding love for animals, this very deep compassion and empathy. And I really had wanted to be a vet when I was a child until I realized I couldn't stand the sight of blood. And that was just not an option anymore. Um, but it really wasn't until I went kayaking with my father in Alaska in the 1990s and a humpback whale fluked right by our kayak that I I really was set on a course. I fell in love with whales. And I went back to Cleveland, Ohio, where I was living. And I was actually working in the field of school reform. I had a master's in education and, and a lot of background in education. And I was working for the Rockefeller Foundation, but in Cleveland. So I was really landlocked, but I, I was reading everything that I could about whales and I found where in the world I could go and actually slip into the water next to humpback whales. And that's in this area, this uh, sanctuary, um, marine sanctuary that's that's off the coast of the Dominican Republic it's called the Silver Bank Sanctuary and i went out on a liveaboard boat with a number of strangers and every single day i was in the water snorkeling with these 50 foot leviathans and it was the most transcendent experience i had ever had to be in the water with these incredibly gentle yet massive and very sentient Creatures and to have the, their song, just the sea was thick with it. You know, you could even hear it from above the water. You could hear them singing. And then when you could slip into the water, you could just hear it all around you. And sometimes we'd get these playful humpbacks that would just hang out with us and kind of dance around us. And it, their sentience, their gentleness, their intelligence just blew me away. And I went to this place every year for a week. And I became aware of the work of this woman, Katie Payne, who with her husband in the 60s, Roger Payne, discovered that humpback whales sing songs. Well, she went on to discover in the 1980s that elephants partly communicate using infrasound, That's sound that's so low, it's below our level of hearing. And she went on to study that in the wild. And I ended up meeting her because she came to Cleveland to give a talk at the natural history museum. And I went to her talk and I was so moved that right then and there in that audience, I resolved that somehow I was going to work with her, that I was going to volunteer my time, that I would do whatever I could to assist her. And she and I went to lunch and we struck up this wonderful friendship right away, this real sense of of wonderful comfort and familiarity and she started giving me things to do and I came to Ithaca, New York to visit her. And that's where I live now because she worked at Cornell and she was starting a a project to study the acoustic communication of forest elephants and she hired me as a research assistant even though I had no background in biology or animal behavior but she saw something in me and she She sort of took a chance on me, and I'll always be grateful to her for that because about a year to the time that I'd been sitting in that audience listening to her talk and hearing those sounds of the elephants, I was headed on a plane to Africa to live with her in the middle of this pristine rainforest among elephants and and gorillas and and pygmies. So for me, that's sort of a, a testament to you know, and when I give talks, I I try to, especially kids, try to tell them that if you're really passionate about something and you might have to volunteer your time for a while, but, you know, if you really pursue something and you're really passionate, you just, you absolutely have to go for it and change your life if you have to. And so that's what I did. And it, it really worked out well for me. I worked for her for about six years and then I stopped working for her to have a little girl, Ruby, who's now 14. And a couple of years after Ruby was born, I decided I wanted to take up photography as a hobby. I hadn't been a photographer when I lived in Africa with Katie. She had put me on the video camera quite a bit because she thought that I had some good observational skills. And it was really there that I learned to think about framing an image and being patient and waiting for behavior to happen and looking for where the next story would happen among the animals. And so I think I sort of honed some of those skills working with Katie in Africa, but I didn't know anything about photography. And so I decided to take it up in about 2007, 2008. And I took a basic digital photography course just at a local community college. And at first I was really into macro photography and taking pictures of plants and insects and really exploring these very sort of intimate, small scale worlds and and looking at color and texture. And I really loved that. But then in about 2010, I discovered bird photography and it was just something in my head just sort of exploded. And I became completely obsessed and sort of changed all my camera gear um, to be the best it could be for, for bird photography and wildlife photography in general, and, and began to just study the art, practice it as much as I could, uh, look at the work of photographers that I admired. And, you know, it was really all that I wanted to do. I took workshops, uh, from a couple of photographers whose work that I liked. And, uh, because it was really all that I, I thought about and and did, I, I was able to, um, learn quite quickly. And I think digital photography, of course, really, you know, I never could have done this back in the days of film. I I look, I look back at that and, and wildlife photographers who used film and I have such respect because digital photography, you know, the learning curve is, is not hardly as steep. You have that instant feedback and you have all those frames per second. It doesn't cost you anything. And, uh, so anyway, I, I began to uh, get assignments for magazines. I partnered with writers. I started working for Smithsonian Magazine and did a number of assignments for them. I also um, just began teaching uh, workshops, and, and then I began writing. Uh, Wes Pitts, who's the editor of Outdoor Photographer Magazine, came on as editor just a few years ago, and he, for the first time, thought that the magazine should have a column on wildlife photography and he reached out to me and asked me to write that and so I write a column every other month for the magazine and I'm really appreciative to him for um putting more of an emphasis on on wildlife photography than that that magazine used to have it used to just be really about landscape and and macro and stuff so he's he's really infused that into the magazine um, and conservation photography as well, which I'm very passionate about. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm totally rambling on. Did I get a little off track?
1: <laughs> no, it, it's a fascinating story. It's super inspiring. I want to talk more about, you mentioned um, ethics and conservation photography. And so oh. I know, that, like you said, these are two things you're incredibly passionate about. And I want to start, if you could just explain to people who might not know, like, what is conservation photography as a discipline in and of itself?
0: Uh, so conservation photography has really become a genre unto itself, and it's been really sort of advancing and growing over the last years. And it's, I think it's really becoming quite well-known, and, and more and more photographers that I talk to are interested in engaging in conservation photography. And basically what that is is it's about drawing – awareness and attention to a species or to the habitat that that species needs to survive and capturing that story. And often there's a human element involved in that story because, of course, there's very few places left in the world where we don't have an impact. So it's about capturing that relationship between humans and the landscape and the animals and and how we're impacting them and what are those threats and sort of making those plain A big part of conservation photography doesn't just happen when you're pressing the shutter. It's really about what do you do with those photos after you've taken them? It's about going the extra mile and finding out who really needs to see those photos and getting those photos into the right hands, into the hands of the people that care, whether it's an NGO or whether it's just the general public, you know, doing your research, getting that photo out there and and telling stories with your photos and really going to work for that species and that habitat so it's it's sort of a multiple step process and it's not just about capturing pretty pictures and when i first started out pretty pictures were really all i wanted to take but as time went on i really became aware that you know the market is saturated with pretty pictures. We don't really need more pretty pictures. I mean, yes, I will never tire of taking pictures that I think are aesthetically pleasing, but what the world needs now truly are pictures that advocate somehow for the subject, whether that subject is a landscape or that subject is an animal. And, you know, I felt that very clearly in my own work. I felt like it's partly too that I feel grateful. Like I felt, I feel this sense of gratitude to wild animals when they allow me into their space. And it's almost like, I feel like it's my way of paying back. You know, how can I use these photos to educate people about even just the, the wonder of that animal, the, the majesty, the, the beauty. Um, I just, I'm completely passionate about wildlife. I'm com- completely passionate about the natural world and about trying to awaken people to the magic of nature because it's all around us. And I think in many ways we're blind to it. And so, you know, I feel like my photos and my work, sort of my love for animals made visible. And so I'm just really trying to turn other people on, onto that. Because I see the wild world diminishing all the time and it breaks my heart. And yet I have this sense of urgency and this compulsion to keep working harder than ever to try to document animals and, and their lives because I see their lives as, as fascinating and complex and that We actually have much more in common than we think we do with non-human animals. So I'm always trying to make those connections. But in terms of the conservation photography, there's a wonderful organization called the International League of Conservation Photographers. And I'm very proud to be associated with them and a a part of that organization. And if anybody is interested in learning more about conservation photography, you can look them up and, and check out the work of the fellows because they're just extraordinary. Photographers and filmmakers in that league who are doing real cutting edge conservation photography work
1: and making a difference like you said and making um, a huge
0: difference, yeah, absolutely. I mean the accomplishments of of these people, I feel like i'm still in kindergarten, you know i there's there's so much more that i I want to do and and accomplish and um, but I learned so much from following their work and. And I'm very fortunate to be able to, to call some of them friends.
1: How do you find yourself connecting to animals when you are in their space?
0: A lot of it is just about finding a way to insert or embed yourself into the setting, into the environment in such a way that you're not a disruption. And most of the time, I'd really prefer actually that the animal not be looking at me you know, if I could have any superpower, it would be to be invisible. And I'm always really interested in, in trying to blend into the environment as much as, as I can. And of course, there's great tools for wildlife photographers now with, um, all kinds of wonderful blinds you can get and camouflage wear. And, but you know, animals are so intelligent and their senses are so much keener than ours that they just about always know that I'm there, even if I'm in a blind. And ethics has been a real passion for me because when I first started out in wildlife photography, I began to see the effect of my own presence when I was in the space of wild animals. And I, I developed a real heightened awareness and I made a lot of mistakes and I still make mistakes. I would never say that I am perfect ethically in any way, but I am more conscious way more conscious than I was when I started out. And I'm always reading the behavior of the wild animal. And if that wild animal seems stressed at all, you know, it's like this well-known photographer, Paul Nicklin, says, if you've stressed out an animal, you've lost a photo. It's it's in our best interest because if we aim to make the animal as comfortable as possible with our presence, we're... We're going to end up spending more time with them, getting a more unique shot, really capturing natural behavior as it unfolds. Whereas if we're really crowding an animal or harassing in some way, it's just going to want to take off or it's going to do a mock charge and look kind of stressed out and then take off. And you know, it's, it's actually in our own best interest. But when I was starting out, you know, I would, I realized that there were times when my presence really wasn't welcome and I started trying to really adapt my own behavior to try to be as sensitive as I could and I began to be aware of the strategies other people were using to get these incredible shots and sometimes they were ethically obtained and sometimes it was obvious that they weren't and I felt there was this sort of vacuum in the wildlife photography community and nobody was calling this stuff out and nobody was raising the question of, you know, we're the ones who really who really want to get close to these animals to get these shots. We're the ones who, uh, you know, have the potential of, of causing disturbance if we're not careful. So what do we need to do to um, really minimize our disruption? And why don't we talk about those practices and how we build sort of that ethical sensibility into our field craft, how do we act with empathy and compassion? And so I really feel like ethics comes from empathy. You know, I feel like if we can put ourselves in the place of that animal who's protecting her young uh, at the nest and thinks we're a huge predator, um, if, if we're really sort of thinking about being in the place of that animal, I think it'll help us sort of come up with just more kind sorts of practices. And sometimes you just walk away. Sometimes you just have to walk away from a shot if it's just too stressful on the animal and, and the animal's really not comfortable with you, even at a distance. And so it's really, there's so many shades of gray in ethics I've learned. They're pushed into smaller and smaller spaces all the time, wild animals, right? Their habitat is so fragmented and. And that, that's really the biggest threat to animals around the globe is habitat loss, habitat destruction. And so we're really a guest in their homes when we go into these wild spaces. Um, you know, I worked on a story for, for Smithsonian magazine in Alaska on snowy owls. And I worked with a scientist who's sort of the snowy owl expert. He studied the, the nesting snowy owls there for decades. The stories that he told me were just legion about photographers coming and driving snowy owls off their nests and the nests failing and snowy owls are really in trouble. So, you know, we just kind of have to weigh these things. Is my shot really worth the possible loss and stress to this animal?
1: I know you're an ambassador for Project Coyote. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. And what the work is and what you've been able to accomplish through
0: photography. Well, I just recently became an ambassador for, for Project Coyote. And, you know, I think that they sort of reached out to me because they saw the power that imagery can have in changing people's minds. And I've been able to do that. You know, they also advocate a lot, not just for coyotes, but also for foxes and bobcats and wolves. And they had seen some of my work where I had shared stories about fox families and, and bobcat families. And I'd sort of documented these stories that unfolded over time and they saw the power of those and I've seen the power of those. And so I think they just felt it would be useful to add me as a voice. They see that I do a lot of Advocating for coyotes. I I accompany my images a lot with words, both on Instagram and on Facebook. And I'm always trying to educate people about the place for predators in our ecosystems and the absolute necessity of these animals to keep a healthy ecosystem going. And I think a lot of people just don't realize the importance of that for a balance in our ecosystems. And so I try to come at it from more of a science background rather than an emotional one because I think more people will listen um even though I do have a lot of emotion about it uh where I live there's a lot of coyote persecution and there are coyote killing contests where people go out and kill as many coyotes as they can in a day and I've been speaking with Project Coyote about trying to get that those banned in the state and you know I'll be working on that with them um but it's really about trying to get people to think differently about the wildlife around them. It's about getting them to treasure what's around them and to see how wildlife makes our lives all richer.
1: There's a image of bobcats and or bobcat mama and kits. And you were yes. saying that it's potentially one of your most treasured photos. And I'm yeah. curious as to what it is a about bobcats, um, that, uh-huh. that, that you treasure and then um be how how you are able to to change people's mindsets like what you look for in it to create an image that does Mm -hmm. make people say huh that's not what i would think
0: i think the main thing that i'm really looking for is highlighting and and drawing attention to the feeling and the emotion and the bonds that animals have for their mates or their families. You know, I think that's something that we can all relate to. And if we can see that other animals experience that, that we'll all make decisions that are more compassionate. And I had this incredible experience with those bobcats. For some reason, I'm just fascinated with all wild cats. I'm just really drawn. It's just, they're one of my obsessions. And I had had this desire to Photograph bobcats for a long time, but they're incredibly elusive. And I think that was part of the mystique. And I I actually made a trip out to Yellowstone one year because there was a a section of the Madison River in West Yellowstone where they would reliably prowl in wintertime, mostly in January to look for waterfowl and uh, muskrats. And they sometimes will leap into the water to pursue these things. And it's really one of the places in the country where you have a pretty good chance. And so I went out there with some friends one winter and made this trip and spent all this money. I got my shots. They were good shots, you know, lovely light and some action and came home. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who's a a tracker and a naturalist. And he knows I'm always sort of looking out for things. And he said, Melissa, about two miles from your house, there's a roadkill deer carcass. And there's a couple of bobcats that are coming and feeding at it. Get over here. And you have never seen anyone get out of their bathrobe (laughs) so fast. I was, I mean, two miles from my house. So I cruised over there. I saw them and I had to be so careful because it was a really hard winter that year. And I was really scared that I would send them off the food. And I didn't want to do that. And I also didn't want anybody else to notice them. They were a little bit off the road and there's quite a bit of bobcat trapping that goes on here. There's these kill contests where they also kill bobcats and foxes as well as coyotes. And I felt very protective. And so I would pull my huge honking lens back into the car whenever another car would come. And I really read their behavior for a while before I settled in. I wanted to make sure I wouldn't send them fleeing and they 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 somehow figured out that I was okay and they would come forward and go to the carcass and they would retreat back and at one point uh as I came to understand it was a mama and her two kits and at one point they were sitting some distance back from the carcass just taking a rest from feeding and sort of preening themselves and then all of a sudden one of the kits just kind of snuggled against her mother And it was an intimate expression. It was one could almost call it loving, although I'm sure some people would disdain that. But you know, it was, there was definitely an intimacy to it. And that photo, I will say, I think I can say definitively that it is my favorite photo I've ever taken. And it's because it's hard enough to see one bobcat, let alone two or three. And not only did I see more than one, but I saw this tender expression of connection and of a bond. And it's so rare that we get to see that with bobcats. And I felt like it was such a gift because I I could share this with other people and I could sort of wake other people up to the fact that these animals, which some people just consider, you know, varmint and and worth nothing more than the pelt that they can get off of them when they trap them or that their target practice or that they can kill them for a kill contest. You know, they're worth so much more than that. They have families, they have feelings, and they're an important part of the ecosystem. They catch a lot of rodents. Anyways, so to have that, I got so many great photos, but to have that one particular Photo that really stood out for me. And, and so I've, I've used it quite a lot on social media. It's been published in magazines. And I think people really do respond to it because they're like, huh, I didn't know bobcats would sort of have feelings like that. Or, you know, look how sweet that is. And that's, that's not different from my house cat, you know, snuggling up against me or its, its mother. And the other thing that excited me so much was this was in my backyard. You know, I had just traveled across the country to photograph a bobcat, but yet this was two miles from my house. And so many of us have this, this wild life right around us and we don't know it or we don't see it or we don't treasure it. And if I can find a way to capture that around my home and try to wake other people up to, gosh, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this beautiful? You know, let's do what we can to support our local wildlife. And let's try to make more humane decisions when it comes to trapping or let's get rid of these damn predator kill contests. So I will use those photos in every way that I can to advocate for those animals.
1: Thank you so much for not only the work that you create, uh, but bringing so many of these things to light for people who maybe just haven't even thought about like, you know, certain things. Um, I want to make sure that everybody knows where they can follow you. Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Well, of course I have a website. It's Melissa grew dot uh, com, And I have an Instagram page and I post just about every day there. And that's just at Melissa grew. But yeah, those are, those are the main, Oh, and outdoor photographer magazine. Of course. Um, if you go to the website, um, you can find all my columns archived, but I talk a lot about strategies for wildlife photography and also ethics, how to photograph captive animals or sort of the ethics of that and all that stuff. So that's all available there.
1: Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your stories and, and inspiring us all over the world.
0: Thank you, Kenna. It's really been a great, great pleasure.
1: I'm Kenna Klosterman and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live, edited by Laura Finnerty. Follow all things Melissa Grew on social media at Melissa Gru, that's G-R-O-O, or on her website, melissagru.com. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, head over to creativelive.com and check out the Creator Pass, our subscription that gives you access to over 1,500 classes taught by the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Creative Live podcast, We Are Photographers, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. You can stay up to date with everything happening here at Creative Live by following us on social media at creative live everywhere thank you again to melissa grew and i'll see you all next week for another episode of we are photographers